Hello, friends. This is Ken Aldridge, head of school. And in this edition of the Quaker Matters podcast, we get to hear from Ethan Cooperson, class of 1987. Ethan has been no stranger to our students here at school where he's provided lunch and learns, where he's been able to talk about his career as a senior researcher in statistics. A self-described class historian, keeper of noticeable quotes, an observer of people, and fascinated by math and with numbers, Ethan has parlayed all of those passions into a remarkable career in thinking about sports statistics and how they tell a story and how statistics can provide a catalyst to get people talking about their favorite sport, their favorite team, or their favorite athlete. Enjoy. The, the relationships you build from that, you work a Super Bowl with someone, you always have that, you know, you can always talk about, we, we work the Super Bowl together. And to build relationships like that is is really rewarding. And then for me, just to see that a lot of them have moved on and become producers and directors in their own right. And so I think to myself, yeah, I knew them way back when, and now look where they are. So it's it's rewarding to see that. And I feel like I've had a tiny little part in helping them. Welcome to another episode of the Quaker Matters Podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Ethan Cooperson, who is a Wilmington Friends School graduate of 1987 and currently is a senior researcher for Stats Perform, as well as a talent statistician for the NFL on CBS, as well as a whole host of networks, including NBA on TNT, CBS College Basketball, Big Ten Network, Football, and many more. Ethan, how are you? Good morning, Jake. Good to, good to be with you today. Before we talk about your fascinating career and all that you do in the world of sports, I want to touch a little bit upon uh, your friend's experience. So when were you first introduced to Wilmington Friends School? I went the full ride. I have 14 years, so I started in pre-kindergarten. So I, that's uh, fall of 1973, all the way up through graduating in 87. So 14 years. In what ways, being a friend's school lifer, in what ways might you still feel connected to the school? One thing that's, that sticks out to me is that, and I, I'm very aware of this being that I have an unusual career and an unusual lifestyle, that students and friends are very open-minded and very interested in people being different, people doing different and unusual things and encouraging that and encouraging people to do different and unusual things and think outside the box and think out and, and do what you're passionate about. And people, people take a real interest in that. And I think that actually both students and faculty, I think that comes across that people are very interested in harboring an environment of individuality. There's not a, there's not a single way to, pursue things. There's not a single way to establish a career. There are a lot of different things and people encourage that. People really encourage individuality. And that's a big part of what I what I trace back to my roots at Friends. And I would say too that Friends is very much, and I think always has been, very much geared towards let, let's be open-minded. Let's be accepting of people of different races and cultures 
and religious beliefs. And that's a huge part of what I learned at Friends is to is to understand and accept people of different backgrounds. And I learned so much of that. And I think I I I never forget that. Everyone has sort of that one teacher, that one coach that impacted them in a variety of ways. I'm wondering who may have been that person for you at Friends. Thought about that a little earlier. There there were probably a couple of them. Terry Brown, phenomenal English teacher. And I recall to this day when he, uh, there was a, at, at times, let's say I wasn't the most disciplined in getting work done early. And I oftentimes did a lot of my work sort of last minute. And I definitely recall the time Kerry Brown said to the entire class, let's not do a Cooperson special on this assignment, meaning let's not do this at the last minute. But the, but the, beyond that, just what I learned um, in, in the literature class with him, just just phenomenal um, way to dig into literature and really understand it. That's uh, that's um, that stuck with me a lot. So he might be one of the, he might be one of the one who stands out. And Harry Hammond, history, social studies. I, I can certainly say I learned a lot from him. Um, and I think about some of the term papers and, and what the feedback from him on those. And then that's that definitely did teach me a lot as well. I was combing through the uh, 1987 yearbook and uh, <laughs> there's two pages dedicated to Coop's quotes. So just tell me more about this. Yeah, one day in ninth grade, a uh, classmate of mine, Ignacio Diaz, said something that I thought was kind of funny. And I just wrote it down and recorded the date and the time that he said it. And it just started spontaneously that I would just do that um, pretty frequently, just writing somebody would say something funny or a memorable event would happen and I would record it. And by the end of high school, had a pretty lengthy list of <laughs> humorous things that had been said in the class and and uh, humorous events. And people love to go back and read them. And, and to some extent, they'll do. And that's that was a lot of fun. And I think it's also if you look at what I do for a living, it is sort of um, looking at the performance of people and noting what they do and writing things down and looking for interesting insights there. That's that's a similar uh, the, the, the thread has continued to what I do now in the sense of observing people and taking an interest in what they do. I wasn't paid to do it at that time, but fortunately I am now. Do you have, just reflecting a little bit more on your experiences at Friends, do you have one memorable moment that like stands out amongst the rest? I will say that in the in senior year, maybe it was early in the spring of senior year, we had to pick as a class someone to speak at uh, the final assembly. And because I had sort of given myself that role of the class historian, there was a very, it was the students and it was a student's choice. And very quickly, my classmates picked me to do it, asked me to do it. And again, I think that reinforces, hey, there's, there's people enjoy this. People see a value in the person who remembers things that happen and, and recalls the history. And sometimes the, sometimes the embarrassing things too, and the, and the not so good moments, but someone who, who remembers all that and and can put it into context and i think that 
that was a sort of reinforcement of, hey, I've been this guy, the, the class historian, as I say, and people like that. People appreciate that. And that's, that sticks with me that I was asked to do that. And I did it. I thought it went well. <laughs> I, I thought I kept the, the embarrassing stuff to a minimum and, and talked about the good things about our class. We'll dive deeper into what you currently do and your career. But before we start there, when did you first become interested in statistics as they pertain to sports? Because so you gave us a little bit about the class historian and, and wanting to write everything down. But do you remember the moment or moments that you found sports statistics to be something that was really fascinating to you? Probably in, the, in 1977, so I would have been eight years old. I don't know if I have an exact, I, I was at an event at Greg Mann's house, my colleague Greg Mann's house, and I think it was in April, and it might have been the Phillies opening game, and the, the they had the radio on with the game on, and I just started to get really interested in it, and numbers, I've always been fascinated with numbers, and somehow I, I looked at this, wow, the sports are really interesting, I, like every kid that age, like to play sports, and the fact that here was a here was an area that combined numbers and athletic and athletics, and I thought, well, what could be what could be more interesting than that? And I guess without really, maybe not without even knowing why, I just got fascinated with it almost right away. Did you know whether it was high school as you entered Harvard for college, or like during your time at Harvard? Did you know that you wanted a career in sports? No, I didn't because I honestly didn't know that such a thing existed. I honestly didn't know that that the opportunities were there. And it took until I was pretty much out of college before I really looked into it deeper. Well, there are opportunities here. I can at least give it a try. As it turns out now, the number of opportunities have exploded in the sports world because of the there's so much deeper and and so much deeper information that's available. So now it's a huge industry, or not huge, but much bigger industry. At the time, I it was much smaller, and I didn't even know that there were many jobs in the sports world. Um, so it wasn't really till after. So so for a lot of years, I thought, yeah, this is going to be a hobby. It's going to be a passion and a hobby forever. I didn't realize that, yeah, maybe I can actually go and make a career of it. And you have been able to make this a really long and successful career. Knowing that you have many responsibilities and jobs for various networks as a senior researcher and talent statistician, how would you best describe your role? Uh, they are pretty different. So I do work in a full-time as a full-time for a company sport rating, which does a lot of research for network broadcasts and network, I should say, and regional broadcasts. And that is essentially writing notes that get used for uh, broadcasts or writing notes in advance of a game. So just today I did research for the the Royals broadcast of the Pirates-Royals game tonight. Case in point that not every game is a big, exciting matchup there. <laughs> but, but for that network, it's still a big deal. They still need their stuff. <laughs> so so that's, that's my full-time work. And then... My freelance work is um, being on site at those games and providing stats for the announcers and for graphics, um, the graphics producers to create them either into graphics or for the announcers to use verbally. 
And it ties in quite a bit because I worked football with CBS. That's one of my main uh, freelance gigs. And Sport Radar, uh, CBS is a Sport Radar client. So during the NFL season, I'll spend Monday to Thursday doing research for that game on Sunday. And then on um, at the game on site on Sunday, um, having done all that research in advance of the game. And in a perfect world, all of that stuff would get on the air. Believe me, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but uh, uh, you want you'd like to see a certain percentage of it get on the air in a perfect world. But then it's also reacting to what happens in the game. Things will happen in a game that you never could anticipate. And at that point, the challenge is in a short amount of time, figure out what's the context here. What's, is this historically significant? Does it really, does it continue a trend or does it go against a recent trend? What, what is interesting about this? And there is a ton of information available um, but the challenge at that point is in a short amount of time, come up with what's the most interesting thing about this play or this event or this game that this guy's having and ideally get it on the air. And it's, it will break your heart at times because there, you're, there's the amount of time is so limited. You don't have a lot of time to, to dissect through it. You, it's, it's all about thinking quickly on your feet and coming up with something quickly. Going back to your question, then it's, so it's, the day job is doing the research for different events that are upcoming. Then the freelance work, um, a lot of different games, a lot of different networks, CBS, NFL being the main one. We've got the Super Bowl this year. That adds to the excitement. Um, and then CBS basketball and uh, Big Ten network football. And then the radio broadcast, Monday night football. And I do pretty much every Cubs game and every Bulls game on the, on the local broadcasts. Royals Pirates not quite as exciting as this year's Super Bowl, but uh, as we joked offline, I'm sure I'm sure there's a good Bobby Witt stat in there somewhere. Um, so you graduate Harvard in '91 and you start your career as a sports statistician and talent researcher in '94. So I guess I'm just curious as to how you broke into the sports world in. 1994. In, in 90, for a couple of years, starting after I graduated, I was writing letters to pretty much everyone I could to try to get a job, try to get an internship in the sports world, that is. Um, the break came with the 76ers. And they had the late Harvey Pollock, who was sort of an NBA legend, uh, stats, stat keeper. And again, this is in the days before a lot of stuff was was database and computerized. So he would keep a ton of obscure NBA stats by hand. And he had a staff of interns who would help him with that. So that was my start was working for him as an intern. And a lot of that wasn't, it wasn't deep thinking. A lot of it was just compiling numbers. But I would, I, we'd sit in his office and I would, um, just sort of spout out stats, stats about the Sixers. And at some point, um, 93, 94, he said, you know, the radio announcer needs someone for stats this year. Why don't you do it? So that was kind of my start on the broadcast side, was doing stats for 76ers radio. Terrible team. 1993, 94, Barkley had just been traded away. <laughs> they were kind of awful. But um, during that season, one of the one of the other people working at the Sixers mentioned that he had been at the baseball winter meetings in Chicago, and a company called Stat Inc. 
based in Chicago, was at the winter meetings looking to hire, uh, looking to hire people. So I had them on my list to contact, and right away I got on that. And by December, by January of '94, they'd offered me the job. Um, starting with them. So that was Stats Inc. And so I moved to Chicago in 94 to start there. And at the time, Stats Inc. was sort of an upstart company. It was sort of new into the industry. And there were a couple sort of established companies, but Stats really got into the broadcast side, really made headway with Fox and then eventually with CBS. And so I stayed at Stats for 27 years up till 2021. And then Similar thing, another company, Sport Radar, came along and actually started to take some of that TV business and eventually took Fox and CBS. Well, that's the networks I do the most work for. So it really made sense to move over to Sport Radar. And so I've been with Sport Radar just about two years now. Same work, essentially, doing the research notes. And they're tied in with, you know, they're tied in. The networks I freelance for are their clients. So it works out pretty well. Do you remember the first non-Sixers related, but when you were working for Stats Inc., do you remember the first game that you ever did? First I ever did, um, this was uh, it was with NBA on NBC. Um, it was it was Nixon the Bulls United Center. Now, this was the year Jordan was in retirement. Um, but I will say that having seen and heard a lot about Chicago Stadium, to be to be in this is the old Chicago Stadium. Um, it was pretty cool. It was very cool. Um, kind of old and dirty and smoky arena, but it had a lot of history at that point, and and it's where Jordan's career started. And so that was, and it was also the last year of the United Center. It was that was it was that summer when it closed down, and and um, I'm sorry, that was Chicago Stadium. The United Center opened the next year, but that was. That was pretty cool then. So it was NBA on NBC uh, at the at the uh, old Chicago Stadium, and that was also very cool because I starting out with the Sixers, NBA on NBC was kind of a kind of a pie in the sky, kind of a, a dream place to get to. And eventually, I did, and so I started working locally um, when they would have games in Chicago uh, for a couple of years, and then I started traveling with them ninety six ninety seven. So the first finals I worked was a great Bulls Jazz series in '97. So, um, good uh, good way to get in <laughs> on, on those. I want to touch upon your work with the NFL on CBS and contributing and and working really closely with Jim Nance, who many people know is one of the preeminent voices in broadcasting. So what, like, what are game notes? How do you prepare them? What does that Monday through Friday, Saturday look like, knowing that I would imagine each broadcaster, whether it's a baseball broadcaster, basketball broadcaster, wants different game notes? So this is a a long-winded and and poor question, but I I was just curious if you could walk me through your process. One thing that's that's a case in point, I work the Cubs games. John Chomby is the announcer. He's very much interested in the analytics and, and the sort of the current stats. He'll refer to himself as a stat nerd. Certain things he doesn't care about. He couldn't care less about pitcher wins. There, he has no interest in it whatsoever. So I have to know when I'm working a game with him, it doesn't matter to him what pitcher is going to get the win. He doesn't care. 
And there are certainly some examples of that, some announcers who are very much set in stats they like or don't. I will say that on the NFL side, Vance, for example, is fairly open-minded. I don't really go into it thinking he's not going to like this or this is this is a mainstream stat, but he doesn't like that. He is not it might be sort of a case by case basis with him, but there aren't specific, there aren't certain statistics that he just doesn't like at all. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right that it does, it does vary between different announcers. They will have things they like and things they don't like. Sometimes, sometimes you don't know that you find that out on the fly a little bit, you know, you, you put a, a note down in front of him and he goes, I, I don't really think this stats that important, <laughs> but that you can run into that. But having worked with Nats, now this will be year number 20, I have a pretty good sense that he is generally open-minded. And I'll say, too, that it's good for me that he is a little bit, he enjoys little sort of numerological connections and oddities. So if it's, uh, you know, this uh, this game is happening and it's the anniversary of something important that happened, he'll like that. So, for example, last year we had the Chiefs opening game that was against Arizona. Andy Reid, Andy Reid's first game ever as a head coach was with the Eagles against Arizona. So there's a little, so there's a cool little tie in there. And I like that stuff a lot. And Nance actually does too. So that's the kind of thing where I can, I can, we think the same way on that. And, and so it, it it's a good connection there. If some announcers, it, it's true, would not care in the least about that. So I would stay away from it. But fortunately with him, he does like that sort of oddity, oddball connection. For a football game day, what does that game day look like for you? Like, where are you positioned in the booth? Are you like next to, like, are you right next to Nance? There's, there's from the from the right to there's Romo, and actually on the far end, Romo has a spotter who's with him, and then there's Romo and Nance, and then Nance is spotter, and then I'm sort of on the end, and. Every booth is set up a little differently, uh, just depending on how much space we have. But um, essentially, if I have a note to hand him, I'm reaching across to just put it down in front of him. Sometimes some things I'll do with hand signals just for just for if it's something really simple. If the gain is a three yard gain, I'll three finger something like that. So it's it's but essentially what I'm doing is I'm writing notes down on on cards and handing them to him. And people think, oh, this, you know, that's that. And it really does sound very uh, technologically behind. And it kind of is. But I, I the honest truth is to, to do something on a computer would actually take too long. It's just to, it, because of the speed that's needed, it almost has to be done handwritten. You've been doing this with Nance, as you noted, for 20 years. But I guess I'm just curious, doing CBS's number one game of the week, millions and millions are watching are there any nerves on game day for you i describe it as as tension and it's a good tension and i think it might be the same you know a, a star athlete might say the same thing if you went if you went on the court or on the field and didn't feel anything you're not going to be that good but if you went on if you went out and you felt nervous you probably wouldn't be good there's got to be a little bit of a, of a tension and an excitement that's how I would describe it, especially with football, because football for me is just such a big deal. And you're also in a football game, you're almost being relied on every play. Um, you're at least telling the announcers and telling the graphics truck, what's the game? What's the down and distance coming up? Um, 
there's there's so I would describe it as tension as in it's 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 exciting and there's some tension that you have to be you know you have to be sharp um I wouldn't call it nerves but I would call it a, a sort of a tense tense excitement you know, you're you're going to be battling the clock uh, you're not you're not battling another team but you're going against the clock though for that entire game and you have to sort of be on edge a little bit but not so much that it limits how you're able to do your job. Much along the lines of being nervous for the big calls, I, I guess I'm wondering, because as you've noted, a lot of your work is done at this rapid rate, especially when it comes to basketball and football, I know you said is a, is a little bit more like the perfect pace, but you're still finding these stats and handing them over quickly. Do you ever have an oh crap moment? Was that stat right? Yes, yes, it is. It is live TV. Mistakes happen. Mistakes happen. Mistakes are made by announcers. Mistakes are made by the people keeping the stats. And what you hope is that it's going to be something relatively minor. So if I tell an announcer the play gains six yards and it actually gains seven, it's really not a big deal. If you tell an announcer that someone just set an all-time record and they didn't, that's probably a big deal so it's like a lot of things you you it's going to happen if you go into it thinking you're going to be perfect you're going to be disappointed and you can't think that way but what you want to do is just limit any kind of mistakes that's just sort of smaller scale things and if ideally when when you look at something and it's and, and it's a at first glance you see oh my god this is this has never happened before or this hasn't happened since boom boom back you might want to take a you might take a second and recheck that. I, I will tell you when we aired the stat about the eleven to ten game. Game ended. We got that on the air. We we're all excited about it. I tell you, I went right back to the hotel, went right back on the computer and rechecked it just to make sure. <laughs> and it was fine. It was right, but I was <laughs> I was still a little worried. But yeah, mistakes are going to happen, and ideally, you keep them to a smaller scale. And the big picture stuff, you try to check it again if possible. What makes you so successful, so good at your particular craft in helping elevate these broadcasts? I think it's always trying to look for maybe the bigger picture significance of it. And you can get so wrapped up in things on a smaller, smaller scale, so to speak. But I think what makes it better is to look a little deeper and see... What's the historical significance of this? What's the, is there any big historical trend here that we want to look at? And something that happened in a, in a Cubs game recently, the Cubs against the Reds, the Reds left their starting pitcher in to allow 13 runs. And yeah, okay, that's a lot. And first I start with, you know, okay, what, has any pitcher this year given up 13 runs? And then I said, well, let's look at, you know, this is a Cubs broadcast from the Cubs perspective. When was the last time a pitcher allowed 13 runs against the Cubs? Well, it was 1938, and the guy's name was Boom Boom Beck. So we aired a graphic with Boom Boom Beck. And just because of the name, if nothing else, and the fact that it was so many years ago, that just got a lot of people, a lot of people enjoyed that. I, I got someone telling me, oh, yeah, this popped up on my Facebook. It's Boom Boom Beck stat. And, and so I think so. I think the answer is it's it's looking beyond as much as possible to sort of look for the historical significance of, of something. 
and seeing in the big picture, is this is this something people will be talking about? And let's see if there's a, a big story there. Much to the boom, boom stat that you just mentioned, when you find a stat in a game like I was reading uh, just a piece that mentioned you finding the first ever 11 to 10 score Steelers Chargers in 2008. I, I don't know, like just like how exciting is that? That feels like a just again in your line of work, kind of like like the ultimate whatever game winning touchdown sort of, you know. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. That's one where we say, oh, my God, we've got to get this on the air. We've got to try to get this on the air because we don't want to miss this. This is so good. And yes, it absolutely is exciting. Um as I mentioned before, the business will break your heart. Sometimes you've got a note like that. Oh, we can't use it right now because we have to do this promo for this, or we have to get off the air in five seconds after the game. Sometimes that happens, and it, it it does break your heart. But when it gets on the air, yeah, it's 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 exciting. It's put it this way: I I try not to do this. Oh, let's look on Twitter, let's look on the web, and let's just see if people are writing about this, people are talking about it. I I try not to do that. Sometimes it's tempting, though. Sometimes I have the uh, the boom boom Bex that I will tell you. I mean, we got it on the air. We were happy. A little later, one of the Reds, not even on, not even the Cubs broadcast, the Reds radio broadcaster had seen it and came into our booth and just was laughing and enjoying it. So I, I got a sense then that it was it was making some impact. But um, yeah, th- there are there are fun there are fun moments like that. And yes, it is it is quite a thrill. I will mention too that. Sometimes you do a stat, and if it's the sort of the dreaded announcer, the jinx. So we had a stat, the Cubs closer, Edward Alzali, had not walked a left-handed batter all year. We aired it while he's pitching to a left-handed batter, and he walked that batter. I just know that on that they're they're ripping us and saying, oh, look at look at Marquee Sports Network jinxed him. You know, they put up this stat, and of course he walked the guy. <laughs> so but that is fun. That is that's what we're trying to do is come up with stuff that don't get people talking. Do you have again, and you've been doing this for a really long time, so I, I would imagine that this question is nearly impossible. Do you have a favorite nugget that you have found? There are a few that come to mind. The 11 to 10 score was up there. I will tell you that the Patriots Rams Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl 53 in Atlanta. One of the last things I'll do for games, look up something relative to the kickers. And and I came across it that week that in that stadium that year where the Falcons play their home games, no one had missed a field goal all year. Falcons were their opponents. No one had missed a field goal in that stadium all year. Patriots first drive of the game or second drive of the game, they set up for a field goal. And of course, we put in the stat that no one's missed a field goal in that stadium all year. And Goskowski misses a field goal. So... And Nance and Romo are going back and forth about it. Romo says on the air, oh, you just jinxed him. You just gave him the, you just gave him the announcer jinx. And he misses it. So then that was, <laughs> that's one of those ones where, wow. And I just say, damn, I'm glad I had that stat ready. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what is your favorite sporting event to cover? NFL. NFL. The games are so exciting. The games mean so much. Uh, I could almost say an NFL regular season game for me is on par with playoff games and other sports. It's just the the excitement. Every game is such an event. And it's also, I find for me, it's just the right pace for statistics. Baseball it can be almost, it can be slow at times. Basketball sometimes is so fast that as you, much as you want to keep up with the in-game stuff, there's not a lot of time to look for trends. 
football is just enough time where there's, and, and there's also almost in every game, there are going to be interesting things in game and then interesting things, trends, historical notes that, that are relevant. So football to me is the best combination and then best combination of both. And then the games are just so exciting and so meaningful that for me, it is the most exciting. What is the craziest game outcome finish that you've been a part of? Well, one I, that sticks with me is a Bears-Browns game in 2001. The Bears were down two touchdowns with 30 seconds left. They scored a touchdown, recovered an onside kick, tied the game on a diving catch on a Hail Mary by a running back <laughs> with no time left. Then they won in overtime on a defensive touchdown by Mike Brown, second week in a row. He returned an interception for a touchdown in overtime. So this game went from 21 to seven Browns with half a minute to go to Chicago winning in overtime. And every single one of those events was just, just pretty shocking. Um, that would be up there. And then recently, two seasons ago, Kansas City Buffalo playoff game where the lead goes back and forth so many times. The uh, Chiefs get the ball down by three with 13 seconds left. Mahomes completes two passes. They kick a field goal to tie it and win it in overtime. So that's that's up there too. What's one piece of advice you might give someone who is looking to enter just this profession, knowing too, right, that when you entered some 30 years ago, like the opportunities were more few and far between where now from a just data analytics standpoint, whether it's it's doing what you do in, in a booth or from a team standpoint, more and more organizations obviously are, are more open to having folks in those departments. So yeah, just what's one uh, piece of advice uh, you might give to somebody? I will say I've um, had a few times I've spoken to the, the kids of friends of mine who are interested in the sports world and they say, well, let me show you this article I've written. And I look at what they've written. I say, holy cow, I couldn't have written that. I can't write that now. And I couldn't have written that 30 years ago. So the, but yes, the, 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 the industry has exploded now. And I think pretty much every team in, in the major pro sports leagues and probably a lot of the college colleges too have a person or a staff of people who are supporting the coaching staff and just going through numbers and looking up what can what can we find? What can we dig out of these numbers to give the, the coaching staff an advantage? And I kind of joke that back when I started, teams probably got a, a scouting report that said this is the, this this is the team's best three point shooter, so guard him. Now it's when he dribbles left, his shooting percentage goes down. So try to force him to dribble left, and on a catch and shoot, you know he shoots this percentage, and force him to the right baseline because that's he doesn't shoot well from it. So on. So but. I guess the advice I would give is there are so many opportunities in it. There are so much information that's available. And now it's now it's almost you need a staff of people to try to whittle it down, to take this huge mass of data and get it down to a manageable level. Um, and I think the, the opportunities are so much there that um, I think applied knowing applied math well, if, if you want to go that route, is, is valuable. And knowing the game and knowing how that math relates to the sport, I think, is also very valuable. Um, and I, th I guess that's really the starting point, I think, is applied math and knowing, this, knowing the game. Just a couple quick questions here. 
talking about favorite games that you have covered from a football standpoint. What has been the favorite Super Bowl that you've covered? It was. It doesn't get talked about as much as it should. It's the Patriots and the Panthers, 2003 season that uh, Vinatieri won on a field goal with, with a couple seconds left, and there were 37 points scored in the fourth quarter. Uh, it was 14 to 10 going into the fourth, and it ended up 32 to 29, and just so much excitement packed into that fourth quarter. The lead went back and forth a couple times. That was. That's probably the best one. Favorite NCAA tournament game that you have been a part of or the one that you can remember with the craziest finish? 2010, Michigan State against Maryland, second round. And there were in the last 20 seconds, I think, four shots that where the lead changed hands. And Corey Lucius of Michigan State hit a shot at the buzzer to win it. That was pretty phenomenal. The Villanova win in 2016 against North Carolina and the Chris Jenkins shot. That's that's another one. So those those might stick out for two of the best. I, I also mentioned in 2008. So the way the NCAA tournament works, there are on the on the first days, Thursday and Friday, each site has four games, and so as a crew, you work four games in a day, and that's something you basically don't do any other time in the year is work four games in one day. But we had a stretch. We had our our 2008 in Tampa, where. Of the four games we had, the first two had shots at the at, on the last second shots to win the game. So talking about a crazy way to start the day was a, a, a day that started with two crazy games ending like that. So each one was really good, but combine them, and that was pretty special. Uh, Western Kentucky beating Drake and San Diego beating UConn, <laughs> which is, yeah, pretty shocking. So that's that one. That's a pretty special one. But those other two games, I, I guess, for individual games, those stick out. In reflecting on your career and the incredible moments that you have been a part of and incredible broadcasts that you have helped elevate, what are you most proud of? To be honest, it's the relationships. It's, it's, uh, it's getting to work with people. I'll say that in the role that I'm in on CBS, I've been in the same spot since 2000 doing that same, that same gig. And what happens is uh, the announcers have changed just a couple of times. It was Greg Gumbel for four years. Then it was Nance. But the, the people in the truck I'm working with, the people who do the graphics, that job has changed over because that's sort of an entry spot, an entry level position. And I work really closely with them because I'm, during the week we're talking about ideas for graphics and in game we're coming up with stuff on the fly. In addition to the, the nuts and bolts, the, what's the down distance and all that. But I work with, you know, those jobs will change over every couple of years. Typically after a Super Bowl year, CBS will ideally advance those people and bring in younger ones, new ones. But I've, I've stayed good friends with them. And we talk about the people who work with me on that 11 to 10 game. We still, if one of us will see an 11 to 10 somewhere, you know, a hotel room number, we're constantly texting each other about it. So the, the relationships you build um, from that, you work a Super Bowl with someone, you always have that, you know, you can always talk about, we, we work the Super Bowl together. And to build relationships like that is, is really rewarding. And then for me, just to see that a lot of them have moved on and become producers and directors in their own right. And so I think to myself, yeah, I knew them way back when, and now look where they are. So it's, it's rewarding to see that. And I feel like I've had a tiny little part in helping them. 